Praise God. Open your Bibles today. And I want you to open them to 1 Timothy. This morning, I, I have to admit, there are some times where you know exactly how a service is, should go and how you believe you know exactly how it's going to end up. This morning, there are some things that I'm not entirely sure how they're going to turn about, but I do know this, that God will have his way if we are open to it. And um, I'd like us to start from here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy 1 is a, is a very, it's got a lot of stuff in it. He's, of course, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. And, and um, in this chapter, he's got some warnings for Timothy. He's got some encouragement for him. And then he speaks of himself towards the end of the chapter, and, um, or towards the middle, I should say. And he talks about himself in some pretty honest terms about how he's thankful that God saved him. In fact, we'll start from that point it's not our main point, but let's start from there to give it some context. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was a former, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. You guys believe that trustworthy statement that Jesus came into the world to save sinners? You know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a wrong thing for you to identify as somebody that's been rescued from the pit. It's not a wrong thing. I mean, your identity for the rest of your life is not, not just an ex-sinner. You are a, a saint. You are, you are called righteous. You are called a son and daughter of the king. But it's not a bad thing to remember where you came from and remember what you've been rescued. Because as Jesus said, when that woman came and, and anointed his feet with that precious perfume, he, he recognized that because she had been shown much mercy, she was able to love and worship him greater, that she, she recognized how greatly she'd been shown mercy. Had the, had the Pharisees at the table at the time who complained about her and complained about the money she wasted and complained about what kind of woman she was, had they recognized, had they had the spiritual insight that they needed, they too would have realized how much mercy was being offered to them. But they didn't. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were doing pretty good. It's a good thing for you to look back and be able to say, I was shown mercy. And to turn that gratefulness, to turn that thanksgiving upward and say, thank you, Jesus, that your grace was more than abundant for me. So this is a very personal worship. This is a worship that is tied in to what he's gone through, a worship that says, man, I was rescued, I was saved. Thank God for showing me mercy because he would have had every right to just pick me up and toss me into a rock, but instead he picked me up and put me on a rock and gave me a place. Amen. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful place to start in your own worship, isn't it? A wonderful place to start in your own worship is saying, look where I came from. Lord, you showed me mercy. Thank you for showing me mercy. Because the one who knows how much mercy they've been shown has a great capacity for love. 
That's what Jesus said. Now, so here, not only love for God, but love for people. But he continues with this, and, and, and this is really the crux of what we're going to get at. In verse 17, he says now, and so there's a, there's a turning. There's, there's a bit of a break from what he was talking about. It's not entirely disconnected, but he's going to say something new. He says, now to the king eternal. Now to the king eternal. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. By 18, he starts back in with the commands. But somehow in the middle of this letter, now this letter, if you've ever read 1 Timothy, is about as instructional as a letter gets. It's like, it's like a handbook, a guidebook for a young pastor. Here's what you need to know. When I first became a pastor, I devoured First and Second Timothy because I was a young pastor too. Timothy was young, so was I. I was 22 when I started pastoring. So I took this as if God was writing a letter directly to me, and I ate it up, and I went over it and over it. But you know, so many, in our culture especially, we have a broad access to, to, to so many resources and teachings and books about everything and, 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 and helpful resources about what you're dealing with at the moment. We have access to all this stuff. We can pick up a book about anything and learn how to do something. You can go online, which is a dangerous thing. Let me just tell you, the first thing you Google usually isn't the best thing you should go for. The first thing you, you find on YouTube, uh, don't, don't just pick random sources for, your, for your, your, your teaching, for your instruction, for your help. You know, look to the source. Sources matter. That's why, Tim, that's why Paul said to Timothy, uh, you know what you've received and you know whom you received it from. It matters who you receive teaching from. That's why, that's why it's, it's cool that, that you might have a, a, a preacher you like on Christian TV or a, an author you like to read their books, but it matters what kind of life they're living. It matters. And you know, I got to be honest with you, probably shouldn't be the number one voice in your life because you don't know them. You know what I mean? Maybe you wish you did. And that'd be wonderful. I'm, I'm sure they're nice people, but it's important that you know the ones you've received from because, you know, their life should back up what they're talking about. But here, I've got a little off track. I'm going to get back on track. As instructional as this letter is, right in the middle of it is something that's not supposed to be instructional. Right in the middle of it is something that's not supposed to be a guidebook for anything. Smack in the middle of this helpful instruction is pure worship to God. And he feels it's appropriate just to stick it in there. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to answer out loud. How many of you read this, and when you read this, all of those words in between forever and king just kind of blur together? Some of you say yes, and some of you say no, but I know how tempting it is to say, okay, well, let's just worship. But in each one of these words is something so valuable that you need to know about your God. And each one of these words is something that is, is a cornerstone of what we believe. We get into the habit now where we find out what we need to know about God as it pertains to our need of the moment. Now, I got to tell you, we, we talk about this a lot, but the church in general is a, a pendulum-like structure. We swing from an extreme to the other extreme. So the, the church of past centuries 
was at this one extreme for so long where they knew all the stuff about God, but they didn't truly know him. Or they knew all the theory about God, but it never applied to their life. I'm not talking about everybody, but in large part, there were people that would say up and down that Jesus was a healer, that that God is a healer, but they had no faith that he would ever heal them. So what they knew about God never really connected to their life. That was that extreme, right? They know all this stuff about God, but it never really connects to the practical life. But here we're at the other extreme in 2015, where every sermon is this many points or this many keys, and I don't have a problem with somebody this, saying this many points or this many keys, just so you know. Don't throw out all your books that say five keys to this or this many points to this. But we get so far on this side so many times that everything we want to know, it has to apply to us right away or it has to be fixing the problem we have. You know what you're doing when you do that, right? What you're doing is you're defining God by your needs. You're defining God by where you're at right now. He shouldn't be defined that way. He's outside of what you think you need. And there are some things, there, you know, here's the wonderful thing about worship. I, you see in this example, Paul has a very personal worship for a moment. He says, I wasn't worthy. I was shown mercy even though I was a persecutor. Even though I was a violent aggressor, God showed me mercy. So from there, his worship is coming out of his experience. And that's good. But then his worship moves to something that's outside of his experience. And his worship just moves to this eternal truth about God that that really doesn't have anything to do with what he's going through right then. It's just something about God that God has said about himself. In your worship, and worship should be a major part of your life. Now, I know that we say worship is more than just singing. It's more than just talking. It's living. Your life is worship. But I'm just talking about the worship out of your mouth. I know that this is a time of worship. We worship together. This is corporate worship. But every day in your life, I want, to, I want you to consider what words you're saying to God. Now, we're very good about bringing our needs to God, aren't we? And we should. Because the Bible says everything that you, says don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. There's not a need you have that you shouldn't bring to the Lord. He asks for them. He wants you to bring them. Don't ever say, well, I feel like I'm just looking for your hand. Well, his hand is part of him. That's okay. But don't just look just for his hand. That's the other pendulum. Sometimes we say, well, we're not seeking his face. We're just seeking his hand. Let's just seek God. That includes his hand, his face, and everything else. Seek the Lord, all right? There's a song, and I like the song, but the line is weird to me. And I understand where it comes from. There's a song that says, we don't want blessings. We just want you. I understand the thought. The point they're trying to make is, you know, we're not just looking for what you can give us. We want you. But my question is, if you had him, would that not be a blessing? Like, that's the biggest blessing of all, right? Come on, oxymoron. Do you know the the word blessing in the Bible is never used badly? It's never a bad word. It's always, if 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 it's bad, it's not a blessing. If it didn't come from God, it's not a blessing. The devil can't bless you. Blessing is, is by definition from God. So, so if we're seeking him, all, we're seeking all that he is. But, but let me just tell you that so many times our, the, you have to just, just take a minute one day with a notebook maybe. Just take a notebook and throughout your day, write down everything you say to the Lord. Now, if that notebook is empty, you got a problem, right? Yeah. 
gee, I haven't talked to the Lord at all today. Well, that's your first diagnosis. This is a problem. I don't talk to the Lord. You need some personal time with the Lord, don't you? As much as it's valuable that we have time with one another, and I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, it's also valuable that you have some time alone with the Lord as well because that relationship will fix all these relationships, right? So take a notebook, write down everything you say to the Lord, just sum it up. And if you look back at that notebook, and every time I talk to the Lord, I just need something. It's not, you shouldn't remove the bringing in the needs to the Lord, but you need to add some other things. There should be some worship in there. Now, let me tell you, it's good to worship him from, the, from what, he's, what he is to you right now, what, what you've experienced right now. For instance, Sister Audrey got a miracle in, where's Audrey? Audrey, is she here? Audrey, you got a miracle in your body. Praise God, right? God radically healed her. Well, that's wonderful. So, so maybe for Audrey this weekend, part of worship is, Lord, you healed me. Thank you, Jesus, for healing me. I was, I was saved. I was set free from this. Thank God. But then consider, what else are you saying to him? Because you can't just limit it to what you're going through because there are some things about him. See, here's the deal. He tells you how he wants to be worshiped. He tells you what he wants you to say. Do you know when someday when we stand before the throne of God, there are going to be spontaneous things we just can't help but say to him. But at the same time, there are moments, if we're to read the book of Revelation, there are moments in heaven where everybody says the same thing. And we're so individualistic in our culture, we go, well, that's not how I worship. Okay, well, get over it. What if I threw you a birthday party every year, every year and you were terrified of heights and for your birthday every year I said, we're going skydiving because it's what I like to do. Somebody says, well, I thought it's my birthday. Yeah, but this is how I celebrate your birthday. What'd you get for my birthday cake? You know I'm allergic to peanuts, right? Yeah, I got you a peanut butter cake. Why? It's my favorite. It's how I like to celebrate your birthday. That's real nice of you. We feel that this is a good thing. Oh, we all worship in our own ways. And I agree with that. We do. I'm not about to tell you from the pulpit that we all have to be exactly the same. There is beauty in the diversity in the body of Christ. But there's also moments, and you see it through the Psalms, where everybody says this at the same time. Everybody lifts their hands, and nobody says, well, I'm not really a hand lifter. Get over yourself. Lift your hands. He says, okay, it's time to dance. Well, I'm not really a dancer. I don't have any moves. Well, jump up and down, do something, because he said we're all going to dance. So individualistic. So we say, well, God, this is what I feel like saying to you. And that's all right. That's part of it. You saw Paul do that. Then he moves into, this is what God says about himself. And you might say, but I don't even understand what some of those words mean. Well, just start worshiping him that way. And if you were to dig into what every one of these attributes is, it is foundational for your Christian walk. The, the thing is, you don't know two days down the road, two months down the road, two years down the road, you don't know what, what it is about God that you've been saying that's going to bring you through what you're going through right there. But even if it never applied to your life, it still worshiped God. See here, we're sitting here going, well, you got to tell me somehow 
how this is going to help me in my life. Some things we do aren't just to help us in our life. Some things we do because he's worthy of it. Do you know what I mean? Why should I sing that song? This song doesn't really matter to me. That's not the question you should ask. This is the question we ask in our culture. Well, there's certain songs that minister to me and some that don't. What song ministers to the Lord? What's worship about? Is it worship about you? No, No, it's not. Are you the one being worshiped? Absolutely not. So we say, I don't really like that song. That song doesn't speak to me. It's not supposed to speak to you. It's supposed to speak to him. What do you like? Well, I like the tune of that song. Okay, does he like the words of that song? Because I'll tell you, there's praise and worship songs where we've talked about doing it because the tune was so good and we threw it out because the words were just, eh. If it doesn't bless the Lord, what's the point? I'll tell you, when we worship the Lord, we minister to the Lord, he ministers to us. You know that. Some of you have been up at this altar, and I've, I've told you this over and over again, but I've experienced it. There have been times where, where we were, you know, we had somebody in the office and wrestled five hours, not five hours, that's exaggerating, three hours, and that's for real, three hours of talking through something and feel like we got nowhere. Five minutes at the altar and God, click, 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 solves it because he changed something that words couldn't change. So you guys know what it's like when God heals you. Or when God delivers you in that moment of worship and you go, whoa. But the point was that you were worshiping him. Not that you were just there so he could fix you. He will, but let's make him first place. We're not consuming when we come into the church. We're not here to consume a good song and a good message. Oh, that preacher, I don't know. You know, uh, Pastor Jonathan, you're okay, but when that one guest speaker comes, oh, I can't stand him. Oh, he's too long in his style. Well, forget that for a minute. I don't think any of us would have liked any of the prophets in the Old Testament. (laughs) You wouldn't have liked any of them. You wouldn't have liked any of them. They would have annoyed you. They would have grossed you out. They would have made you mad. These are people that Jeremiah is a guy. The king throws him in the pit. And it takes a foreigner to say, maybe I'll rescue you. Everyone that lives in the area says, no, leave him there. I like him in the pit. He's quieter in the pit. Ezekiel's eating bread that he cooked over dung, lying on his side for hundreds of days. Prophet walks around naked around your town. What in the world? John the Baptist, a smelly, hairy guy that comes in yelling, has no manners, gets invited to the king's house for dinner, gets thrown in prison. That's the kind of guy he is. I mean, you've got to be a certain type of character for, for, your, for your wife to turn her daughter's birthday present and to get, give me that man's head on a platter. I mean, there's a lot of nice birthday presents. You've got to make somebody really mad for that's, if that's what they want. My wife's never asked for anybody's head on a platter. So we say, oh, I don't receive from that guy. So we say, this is what I feel right now. Well, it's, it's good because God gave you emotions, didn't he? Now, first and foremost, those emotions have to be submitted to him. Not every emotion is a valid emotion. We know that, right? Just because you feel this way doesn't make it right. There are times you're going to feel angry and you go, soul, I should not feel angry right now not going to feel angry anymore. What does the word say about this? 
There are times where you feel depressed. And what does the psalmist say? The psalmist doesn't deny his depression, but he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope now in God. You say, I know I feel depressed, but that doesn't give the depression a valid right to just rule my life. So I'm going to say what the Lord said, hope in God. That's not denial, that's correction. Right? So, so sometimes we just, this is what we worship, we just feel like, oh, you know, because we've been set free from our parents' generation, our grandparents' church, where they were all so structured and there was that spirit of religion. Well, now we've gone to the other side. Where it's whatever we feel. And it's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. It's just what we feel. Well, let's get back to that place where you are ministering out of saying, Lord, this is what you've done for me right now. And personally, I want to worship you for it. But then there's also got to be these moments where you say, God, I'm not entirely sure why you want me to say this, but I'm going to say it because you say this about yourself. And there will be a point in your life, I'm sure of it, there'll be a point in your life where that comes back around and you needed to know that he was immortal. You needed to know he was invisible. Because listen to this. Let's just talk about it real quick. That king eternal, that, that knowledge that he's existed before time and will exist long after time ends. You think about what that really means? That somehow God is not scared by what's going on? Somehow God is not affected by a bad government or a bad situation, that he is eternal, he is before time, that, that, that his purposes and his plans will not be thwarted. Somehow when you know he's immortal, now immortal, you go, well, of course he's immortal, he doesn't die. There's more to that immortal. It means he's not like us and he can't be corrupted. He can't be changed. He can't be tarnished. To know that his goodness will not be tainted. To know that his holiness will not be stained. To know that he will forever be who he is. Is so valuable in your life because there are times where you say, surely God is shaken. And you, and you have to know, no, God is immortal. He is always good. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Invisible. Why is that a good thing to worship God about? You're invisible. It just sounds like, you know, it's, of course, well, you really want to hear me say that, God? You're invisible? Do you know what that, that really means and what that speaks? It speaks of the fact that he's not contained in physical form. That he's not limited by anything. See, if you could fully see everything that God was, he'd be limited. But he is unlimited. So his invisibility might seem like a liability to you. That might seem like a a downside to God, you wish you could see him. Let me tell you, if you could see him, that would mean you could capture him with your vision and you could comprehend him with your mind and he would be just like you and me. But he is invisible. He's bigger than your senses. He is so beyond that. Oh, that's huge. Then he says he is the only God. And if we could really recognize that he's the only God. He's the only God. There's nothing else. And, and just like he says in Isaiah, he says, guys, you need help. And they're panicking and they're, they're worrying about what's going on. He says, is there any other rock? This is the Lord speaking to them. Is there any other rock? I know of none. When you see him as the only God, not only does he come before everything else, but he's the one you instinctively turn to in a time of trouble. You instinctively turn to in a time of joy. He is above all. He is around all. He's everything. That honor and glory. Honor is this recognition of everything that he is. It's an awe. It's a reverence for all that he says he is. And that glory 
is us turning back and, and with our lips, with our hearts, giving him what he deserves. And he says, to him be the honor and glory forever and ever. Then he says, amen. And if you were to say that in a church service, either in the Old Testament or even in the early church, when someone would say something and then say, amen, all of the people at the same time would say, amen. Because what they were saying was, whatever that guy just said about God, we agree with it, so be it. We're signing our names at the bottom of that document, amen. You'll notice when Jesus, when you read in your Bible, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, it doesn't say that in the original. Even though the New Testament is written in Greek, if you look when he says truly, truly, he doesn't say truly, truly. It's not translated truly, truly in Greek. In the original manuscripts, he, it retains the Hebrew. What he said was amen, amen, I say to you. And when he says amen, amen, he's about to say something about the nature of himself and the nature of God, which totally flips on its head what they've believed before. And when he says amen, amen, all of a sudden he's redefining himself to them. It's so huge. So when he says something about God and he says, amen, all the people are supposed to hear it and go, yeah, amen. And he throws this in the middle of a letter. I wonder if we could throw this kind of thing in the middle of our day. Sometimes we're so addicted to, well, this is the need of the moment. I understand, and I know that your God is a God, not only of eternity, but he's a God in that moment. And whatever you need, he is the I am. Whatever your need is, he's going to meet that need. He can meet that need. He is what you need him to be. But he's also what you don't need him to be. He goes beyond your need. He's not a God that's defined by what you're going through. He's a God that's existed before time. And we say, well, this is beyond me. I'm not a Bible school student. You don't need to be a Bible school student. You say, well, I I don't know. This all sounds above my head. This sounds just too smart. This has nothing to do with intellect and everything to do with worship. And I'll tell you, if if you'll let God do it, I don't care if you have a first grade education. The Lord will, will reveal himself through his word, by his spirit, and you'll understand him on a level that, that Harvard professors don't understand him. If you'll let him, he'll speak it. Sometimes you just say things about him because that's what he says about himself. And in this worship, our hearts are turned to him. We're not just seeing him as a, as a vending machine for what we need. We're seeing him as a God who's existed before we existed. And yes, he is the supplier of your needs, but he's much more than that. I want you to turn to Romans 1, and and we'll show you something. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God... Sorry, I still hear pages flipping. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he's talking about the judgment. Now thank God the scripture says that you have been saved by Jesus. Through Jesus you've been saved from the wrath of God. It says that you are not destined for wrath, but you're destined for salvation. Wrath is not God losing his temper. Wrath is the judge justly punishing the crime. 
So Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. We, see, we hear wrath and we just picture a child throwing stuff around the room. But what wrath is a word that means justice, basically. But it's, just, it's justice for the crime. There has, to be, there has to be justice or else God's not holy, right? So your good news is this. Because right before this, he talked about the gospel and the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. Thank God for that. You're part of that, everyone who believes, right? So you've been saved. You've been saved from the just penalty of your own crimes because Jesus bore the wrath of God on your behalf. But he says the wrath of God is revealed for all ungodliness and people who suppress unrighteousness and the truth. And he says this, because which is known, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That means when you have a heart of worship toward God, you see creation and you see the creator. And not only do you, I mean, I know at its very elementary, elemental level, the basic level, you look at a mountain and say, surely there's a God. But according to Romans 1, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It's not just surely there's a God. You see some things about God. You see some things about his nature, about his character, which you didn't see before. He's revealed himself to humanity. He's revealed himself to these people. And it says his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what, that which has been made, so they're without excuse. And then it says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Anytime we turn back to our own understanding and what we think we know, that word futile comes up. It comes up more than one time in the New Testament. Futile, what does that mean to you? It's powerless, it's useless, it's not going to do you any good. The more you get sucked into your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own what you think, you're getting, you're getting back into that little bubble where, where you're defining everything. And in the end, you're futile. It's useless. It won't do you any good. See, what they were supposed to do was honor God. What they were supposed to do was give him thanks. Now, as Christians, we fall into this trap sometimes too. Because there's things that we just get used to. We just take for granted, but he wants you to thank him for stuff you've already thanked him for. You say, well, surely God knows I'm thankful. Well, say it. Not only for his benefit, but for yours. You need, your heart, your spirit needs to, needs to remind yourself that you are thankful. Thankfulness anchors your heart to God and his nature and his goodness. Thankfulness says, I believe you are who you say you are, even when they say you're not, even when the circumstances look different. I am thankful, and that anchors you back to his nature. So they didn't give him thanks. They didn't give him praise. They didn't honor him. So what happened? They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And guys, this is not a light switch moment. This is a gradual dimming. What's this chapter about at its root? Yeah, it's about how humanity went off course. It's about how every culture went off course. But at its root, it's about worship. At its root, it's about right worship being the cornerstone of everything else. And it's about wrong worship, how it affects the rest of our life or lack of worship. In verse 22, 
professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So we can look at every culture, whatever culture we come from, at some point in history, our ancestors worshiped stupid things, right? Whether it be a dumb animal or a dumb tree or a dumb star in the sky, we worship weird things. I don't even want to talk to you about my ancestors and the gross things they did and the stupid things they did. We might say, well, we're civilized. Well, we've just changed. We've just dressed our stupid speculations up a little bit better. You don't think we exalt man? We worship man. We worship our own image more than we've ever worshiped our own image. We look to government to save us. We look to our community to save us. We look to ourselves to save us. We have turned an invisible God into a very visible, very flawed little G God. Just because we don't worship a tree doesn't mean our own, that we're not worshiping anything. Thank God for science, but science is limited to our own human understanding. And I don't know any of you that you've figured out how to create the universe, right? But God knows, and God's the only one who could do it. Science is great, but it's, it's always going to be limited. So it can't be a God to us. Now, if you're, if you're a scientist that believes in a creator, if you're a scientist that believes that I may not know how it happened exactly, but I know he did all of this, then suddenly your science, your, your study of creation becomes a study of the creator. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, come on. You study biology? Liberty's husband. When, I mean, he's a, he's a surgeon now, but I mean, he, he majored in biology in college. And, and so this is something he loves. Well, when he would study these, the, the intricacies of the cell or, or all these different things throughout nature, to him, it, it was glorifying to God. It's not about the information. It's about what you do with the information and how high you put the information above God. We exchanged it for stupid gods, things that they can't do anything. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Remember what I told you about when you see amen in the middle of scripture? This is a point that everybody's supposed to agree with and everybody's supposed to echo. So in the middle of it, he puts this worship. He is blessed forever. And he says, amen. And everybody says, amen. He's blessed forever. Then it says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving their own persons, the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which aren't proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Wow, that's, a, that's next level stuff right there. You know, just do evil. You're inventing new ways to be evil. You guys been on the internet lately? Yeah, that's, that's right there. Inventors of evil there are. Uh, there are, there's people out there that are finding new levels of evil. 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Kind of weird that that's just thrown in there, isn't it? We put that on a low level. Oh, disobedient to parents. Our culture is more dishonoring than they've ever been. And it's all rooted to this, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. If you can't see that in our culture, you're not paying attention. Sin is not tolerated. It's celebrated. It's awarded. Now, let me just tell you, I'm, I'm, this message is not about sin. It's about worship. Do you see how a lack of worship or twisted worship, worshiping the wrong thing, gave root to all this other stuff, all this other sin, which you could say pretty much every type of sin is named here. All of that other stuff was rooted, and it just began from a simple seed. They didn't honor him. They didn't give him thanks. If we would start and end with worship of God, there's a lot of other things that would fall in line. When you neglect that, there's a lot of things that fall out of line. And let me tell you, for us to say, this is about what I want to do, this is about what I feel like doing, this is about what ministers to me, this is about what speaks to me, we are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So it gives you a little insight into why in the middle of a letter telling Timothy how to be a good pastor, right in the middle, this is now under the king eternal. Under the Lord, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Your day should have those moments where regardless of what you feel you need at the moment, bring your needs to the Lord. Understand that He is the meter of those needs. But regardless of what you're going through, regardless of the revelation you're receiving at the moment, have those moments of worship where you just say to the Lord, I'm just going to worship you with the words you came up with. You know what I love about God? He writes his own songs. He does. Some of the best songs I know that we sing and we put to music just came from stuff he said about himself. And you know why that's so good? Because as you sing those songs, and you're doing the dishes and you're singing those songs and you're going through your day and you're singing those songs, your heart is being reminded of who God is. And when your eyes are fixed on who he is instead of who you are or what everything else is going on, all of a sudden, everything else seems so small and everything else seems so utterly beatable when you realize that he is this. Your heart's turned towards him. Your eyes are looking towards him. And, and, and it, lip, it lifts your face from looking at the ground and all these earthly things. And it turns your eyes heavenward. And I know sometimes we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But come on, guys, we got to be practical. See, if we're not practical, we're not doing any good. I, I agree we need to be practical. But the practicality comes behind this. Worship him. Let, let him be first. And he'll show. He'll show himself in the practical. He'll show up in the everyday life. He won't keep himself merely in this theology corner that you've created. He, all of his attributes and his nature and his character will bleed into every area of your life. But start and end with worship. One of the guys that has ministered to me in my life greatly said something that somehow just stuck with me. He said, and he was just saying this in conversation, I think. I can't remember if it was a sermon or a conversation. You need to have people in your life that 
you have conversations with, you can't remember if it's a sermon or a conversation. Those are good people to have in your life. <laughs> we shouldn't have church talk and home talk, should we? We should speak the word of God at all times. But anyways, he said, he said, you know, for as long, for as far back as I can remember since I've been a believer, since I've been in ministry, he said, the last thing I say when I go to bed and the first thing I say when I wake up is praise be to God. And that was him. That's just what he says. But it struck me, because I know this guy, and I know he means it. And it struck me that he thought that was the, the most valuable thing he could say at the end of his day, and the most important thing he could say at the beginning of his day was praise to be to God. Do you know how a, a, an attitude like that shapes everything else in your whole day? It does. It orientates everything differently. You view everything differently. It's about him. Thank God. You know, I don't want to go back to the period of history where we knew all this stuff about God, but we had no understanding about how that affected our life. And so we just kept God over here and the rest of our life was over here. I believe God is the thread. He is the, he's the breath in everything. And so his song rings out throughout everything. His melody is woven within all of our days and our lives. And yet, and yet, there are some things you say about God and you have no idea how that applies to you. But he said, I want you to say this about me, so you say it about him. And that's a good thing. And that'll change our lives. So let's become a church of worship. Let's become a people of worship. I know some of you already are. I want you to, I want you to try the notebook experiment. Take a notebook through one day and don't manipulate the day to fit the notebook. Or your iPhone, your iPhone's, that's better. Your phone's always with you. Whatever kind of phone you have, Android, iPhone, whatever. Maybe like my Uncle Stan and Aunt Cheryl, they have phones from like the 70s, it seems. But bring these phones with you, or whatever you got, notebook, phone, whatever it is, and just take note of every word that you say to the Lord. What, every moment in the day where you said something to God, like I said, if it's empty, that's problem number one. If it's very me-oriented, it's not bad that you're talking about yourself to God. You should. It's a problem if it's the only thing you're saying to the Lord. If your prayer life is just centered around what you need at the moment, it's not, you don't need to remove that, but you need to add a lot of other stuff. And I guarantee once you, put your, you base your life and your prayers and your conversation around Him, this other stuff will make sense. This stuff will work. the king, immortal, invisible, eternal, the only God, be blessing and glory forever and ever. Amen. Where's Kelly? Kelly, you here? You're way at the back. Come on up and play a little bit for us, Kelly. I'd like us just to Turn our hearts heavenward for a minute. In fact, why don't you stand with me?